Go ahead and open your Bibles to Matthew chapter 6, the text that we just read on the screens together. If you're new to fellowship, here's how we teach. We, we pick a book of the Bible. In this case, it's an extended portion of a book, and we just explain it verse by verse and apply it to our lives. And we've been in the Sermon on the Mount for a number of months now, Matthew 5, 6, and 7. We're a little more than halfway through it. We're wrapping up chapter 6 this morning. Now, the essence of what it means to be a Christian, and this is what we've been reminded of in the series, the essence of what it means to be a Christian is to make a commitment to follow Jesus Christ. That means what he said, we believe. What he taught, we obey. What he did, we do. And it's easy to say that. And then we've gotten into these texts and some of them just seem impossible. I think this is one of those. But we follow Jesus, not just because the Bible says follow Jesus, although that would certainly be reason enough. We follow Jesus because Jesus is the most brilliant, the most remarkable, the most full of life, the most powerful yet humble, incredible human being who ever lived. And that man is inviting us into a new way of living. And so the message of the sermon that we keep coming up against, you know, is basically Jesus saying, let me show you a whole new way to live. And it is going to seem upside down. It's going to seem wrong. Like it's going to seem like, no, life doesn't work that way, Jesus. And Jesus says, That's ex- then you're hearing it right. If you feel that tension, you're hearing it right. Because what Jesus is trying to do is he's trying to invert the way that you think about the world. And he's actually calling you to live right side up in an upside down world. This is what Jesus did. This is what Jesus modeled. And so this new way of living, following Jesus in this right side up life, requires a new way of thinking. Because what you're discovering as you're walking through this series, at least what I've been really convicted by as I've been studying these texts fresh, is that I've been thinking upside down about so many things and no things more than the three topics that we're in the middle of right now in the sermon. Last week, money. This week, worry. Next week, judging others. Are there, like, are there three topics that are more timely and perfect for our moment right now, like money. We're in Williamson County, and you know, yet there's stress about money because we don't know what's coming, but we have a lot of money, some, some not, et cetera. Worry, oh my goodness. You know, we, we are now the United States of anxiety, it is, is really true. And, and judging other people, which Lloyd will get to next week. Guys, like, what great timing for us to be talking about these things. And what I'm finding is like, I'm way off course. And I hope you're feeling a little bit of that too. You're, we're way off course in the way that we've been thinking about these things. We need Jesus to reshape our minds and transform our hearts. And so each week we've been praying the same prayer together at the end of the message, Jesus, show us what it means to follow you because we believe these words are meant not just to be understood, but to also be obeyed. And in this topic of anxiety and worry today, I'm gonna press into it. I'm just gonna ask the question that I think is probably on all of our hearts. Does Jesus actually expect us not to worry? with all the complexity and trouble in our world. You know, for some of us, you're probably feeling that more than ever. I had a really anxious week this week for a lot of different circumstances. Some, some of it was just, I didn't have time to work on this message. And it kept looming over me. I was like, Sunday's coming, Sunday's coming. And I was teaching a message on worry and anxiety. And I was just like, oh my goodness, I'm just a mess. And, 
But here's the thing. If we're serious, let me start with Jesus. If Jesus was serious, and I think Jesus was, I mean, he was joyful and he was full of laughter and he made jokes, but I think he's very serious here. If Jesus is not joking, he's serious. And if we're serious about following him, what do we do? How do we live this out? Jesus is gonna do something fascinating in this passage. He's gonna start with the what of the command and then he's gonna go through all the heart of the command, like literally, and I'll explain how that works. But let's start with the what of the command. So Matthew 6, verse 25, this is the big idea. This is the thesis statement. This is his command. Here it is. Therefore, I tell you, do not be anxious about your life, what you will eat or what you will drink, nor about your body, what you will put on. Is life not more than food and the body more than clothing? Of course, all of us are thinking, well, of course it is. You know, there's toys and technology and vacations and all those other kinds of things. I want you to think about what the food, drink, and clothing represents, right? It represents security. It represents fullness. It represents provision. It represents identity and, you know, your coolness and whatever, you know, you're chasing in your life. Is not life more than all this earthly stuff, you know, Jesus is saying. Now, I want to actually start with the first word here. I got a little bit ahead of myself because I was excited. But therefore always points us backward to what, you know, what is the therefore there for? And if you look back to the previous passage, which was Lloyd's message last week, which was great if you missed it. In that passage, you see this little verse where your treasure is there, your heart will be also. And Lloyd said, there's only two places you can put your treasure. You put your treasure in earth, you can invest it there, you can put it in heaven and invest it there. Problem on earth is moth and rust and all kinds of things are going to go after it and destroy it and it's not secure, but there's no moth and rust if you put your treasure in heaven where your treasure is there your heart will be also. Now if your treasure and there your, therefore your heart are with God, it follows that you are no longer controlling them and if you're not controlling them, there's nothing to worry about. Like how can you worry about things that you can't control? I mean, it's, it's entrusted to God. And so this is the first thing that works against our anxiety. Put your treasure and thus your heart somewhere where they're safe. This is all last week, but it, but it matters to today. And who better to entrust your life to than your heavenly father? So Jesus is able to say, because of all that treasure in heaven stuff from, from the previous passage, therefore... Do not be anxious. Now, now this is a start, okay? He's, he's starting to kind of work in our heart, but primarily this is just the idea. Like, you know, therefore, do not be anxious about your life, et cetera. And where Jesus goes from here is remarkable. The next nine verses, he digs into the heart of anxiety. And when I say that, I mean it in, in the way that we talk about it here at Fellowship, the biblical uh, definition of heart of, of our inner person, you know, the thoughts, emotions, desires, choices. He's going to talk about the thoughts, emotions, desires, and choices of worry, of anxiety. And so let me, let me just remind you of a couple things. At, at Fellowship, we talk a lot about the Bible's description of the human heart. Here it is. You know, we didn't come up with this. You read the scripture, the Bible describes your heart as your thoughts, and your, your choices, your will, and your desires, and your emotions, it's, it's all of you. It's not just the romantic, emotional part of you. It's the core you that is in you. And what the Bible says over and over is the heart must be transformed. So what most people try to do is they try to go straight from what they know to their choices. So it's like, okay, I read my Bible. I know I'm not supposed to worry. Tomorrow, I'm going to stop worrying. Good luck with that. You know, you're just going from your thought to your choice. Like, oh, I know I'm supposed to obey, so let me obey. Does that work for anybody? I mean, I know some of you are way more self-disciplined than I am, but at some point in time, you know, this, this little like 
bypassing the rest of you and just trying to, okay, I know it, now let me go do it. It, it just doesn't really work long term. Uh, we talk here at Fellowship about what we call a transformational pathway. And, and, and here's what this looks like. It starts with your thoughts because what scripture does is renew our minds. And then that shapes what we feel. I mean, like, you know, you feel differently about yourself and about God and about the others around you and about your calling and mission once your mind has been renewed. So from your thoughts down here, the emotions, and then guess what? You start experiencing new desires. I mean, it's less selfishness and, and, and more of other kinds of desires transformed by God. And then from this place of new desires, you actually want to obey, you see. That's this transformational pathway. In fact, if I was going to draw it out here, it just would look something like this. And you'll see this here at Fellowship. You'll, you'll see just, just this symbol, different places around our church. And that's what that's referring to. It's like transformation of the whole heart. Now, why do I ex re-explain this transformational pathway today? I want to show you how Jesus, in our text this morning, walked his disciples through this same transformational pathway in relationship to worry. So, so here's, here's what happened. Jesus knew that anxiety is incredibly difficult to root out of the human heart. And so he didn't just say, don't be anxious. You got it? Good, let's move on. Instead, he engaged their mindset, their thinking, their emotions, their desires, and finally their choices. And, and literally, the text lines up this way. Verses 26 to 30 it's all about their frame of mind. They're thinking about these kinds of things. And then you get, get down into verses 31 to 33, which are emotions and desires, kind of that below the waterline parts of their heart together in those several verses. And then choices, verse 34, he comes back to the command, but he states it a little differently. So this is going to be our outline and how we're going to walk through this text is the same way Jesus did. Start with our thinking and then go to our desires and emotions and then come to our choice. Let's start with our mindset, our thinking in verses 26 to 30. Jesus said, look at the birds of the air. They neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns and yet your heavenly father feeds them. Are you not of more value than they? Which of you by being anxious can add a single hour to his span of life? So have you ever thought about that? And why are you anxious about clothing? Consider the lilies of the field, how they grow. They neither toil nor spin. Yet I tell you, even Solomon in all his glory was not arrayed like one of these. But if God so clothes the grass of the field, which today is alive and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, will he not much more clothe you? O oh, you of little faith. That last phrase could be translated, O oh, small faithed one. O oh, 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 you of little faith. Now, Jesus starts with our minds. What he's essentially saying is, I, I want to reshape the way you think about the creation around you and about the God of the creation. What he's actually doing is he's challenging our worldview. Remember, a worldview is, you know, how you think about the world around you, the problem of the world, the solution to the world, and how you fit into the world. It's your worldview. If I told you there was a worldview out there that mixed up your priorities and, and messed up your theology and did zero practical good, would you want to have anything to do with it? You would run away from it as fast as you could. Yet you and I have a worldview 
and I want to explain this to you, that does precisely those things. And I think it's one of the biggest contributors to the worry and the anxiety inside of us. So the first place Jesus goes is he says, I want to challenge your worldview. Now, what is this worldview that's doing all this damage? And what is the new worldview that Jesus is calling us to? That's what we're going to talk about. He invites us into a whole new way of thinking about the creation and the God of the creation. And he does it in a surprising way by pointing us to two little pieces of the world that are easy to overlook, birds and flowers. Now, there are, are two imperative verbs in this text. You know, an imperative verb is a command. There are two commands in this text. The, the, the first is look at, and then the next is consider. They're, they're technically two different Greek verbs, but they essentially mean the same thing, and they mean more in Greek than they do in English. When you read this in English, it sounds like he's just saying, you know, example A, like, you know, consider as an illustration the birds, and, you know, think about as an illustration the grass. He, he's actually saying a bit more than that. What, what he's saying is take an actual look at them, examine them, study them, um, go home, this would, this would be a paraphrase of it, but it would be pretty accurate. Go home and spend time just looking at birds and flowers. Become a bit of a bird watcher and a gardener. It's literally what Jesus is saying. In, in, why is he telling us to do this? He's saying, if you want to find freedom from anxiety, start by looking at these two little bitty pieces of creation because they will help you see the whole big world differently. Meditate on birds and flowers because there's an important lesson for you to learn from them. What's the lesson? Well, let's meditate on birds and flowers. Let's talk about them. Let's think about them. Let's look at them. We'll put them on the screen because I, I couldn't bring any birds here this morning. Now, the lesson Jesus is getting after from birds and flowers is that if you pay close attention to the creation around you, you'll find that it's a place of abundance, not scarcity, that comes from the hand of a gracious and generous father. Jesus is drawing attention to the fact that neither birds nor flowers are workers, contributors, producers, they, they, they don't have to, they're not farmers to go and produce the food, you know. They don't knit and they don't sew and create their own clothing. They simply receive. They receive from the hand of God. And I think kind of what he's getting us to think about is the, the, the fact that creatures like that exist and are provided for is a sign of the abundance of creation and the generosity of God. Look over here at these flowers. God did not have to make lilies. They are an overflow of grace. Lilies are evidence that we live in a world of so much abundance that superfluous beauty just springs up from the dirt. Now, the root of all anxiety is a scarcity mindset. What do I mean by that? Think about the questions that undergird your anxiety. You know, we, we feel anxiety, but, but we often don't really think about it. Jesus is calling us to think. Here are the questions that undergird our anxiety. What if I miss out? 
What if I get left out? What if I'm lonely? What if I lose my money, my job, my relationship, my health? What if life gets hard? What if I don't have enough? What if I'm not enough? Jesus is inviting you to live by a different story. A story that's rooted in trusting the abundance of the world around you and the generosity of the God who gives. More than 100 years ago, an author named Elizabeth Cheney, different Elizabeth Cheney, wrote a lovely little poem. Uh, it was entitled, Overheard in an Orchard. Said the robin to the sparrow, I should really like to know why these anxious human beings rush about and worry so. Said the sparrow to the robin, friend, I think that it must be that they have no heavenly father such as cares for you and me. Birds and flowers remind us that this world, despite its broken condition, this world is still the domain of a gracious and generous God and they remind us that we are children of a father who delights in caring for our needs. And so I want to press into the objection. Because anytime a worldview is, is, is trying to get uprooted in you, you're, you're always going to just intellectually push against it. Like, well, but that's not always true. I see crushed flowers and I see dead birds and I see brokenness around me, and I see a creation run amok, and all that, of course, is part of living in this brokenness and in this fallenness, but I want you to think about this. Guys, I can't even imagine what Genesis 1 and 2, Genesis 1 and 2 in the garden looked like. I mean, it would have been magnificent to have no more curse. But even in our world, okay, even in our broken, fallen world, is there not glorious beauty that's just there because God has placed it there? You know, think the food that we eat, it tastes delicious. Why? Because God desired for it to be. The provisions that you have, the clothing that's on your body, the fact that you've come here, most of you, maybe all of you, without an empty stomach this morning, unless it's an intentional fast, it is all an overflow of generosity and abundance. I was talking to Karen Bruton this morning before the service. I hope you don't mind me telling your story. Okay, she did this. I don't know if that means don't tell it. Okay, good, okay, I can tell it. <laughs> a number of years ago, Karen was in Africa. Well, first of all, she started the conversation with me before the, before the service by saying, you're going to teach a text this morning that changed my life. Well, I said, well, I better hear that. And uh, she was in Africa a number of years ago, and uh, what she saw was tragic. She saw children literally starving to death. And that scene was juxtaposed by this text. Someone was teaching this text and, you know, and the birds and the flowers and, you know, you're, you're more valuable than that. And, 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 and Karen says she felt angry inside. And then at the end of the message, the teacher looked out and said, God is calling you to bring the abundance of your Father in heaven to the world in need. That's what Karen did. That's what she started devoting her life to. That's what changed her life. 
even the fallen creation. We live in a creation of abundance. The problem is the selfish, broken human heart. Those of us whose hearts have been transformed and are being transformed, we have the opportunity to be a provision, to let the generosity flow from us. Now, I hope that challenges your way of thinking. Jesus is intentional here. He's going after our worldview. He's going after our thoughts. He's trying to change us, the way we view the world and our place in it. Now he's gonna go down to the emotion of it and the desire of it. And this is verse 31 to 33 down in here. Let's take a look. Therefore, there's that word again. Let's underline it. It's pointing back. What is it pointing back to this time? In light of this new worldview, creation is abundant and God is generous and he cares for you even more than flowers and birds. In light of that, do not be anxious saying, what shall we eat or what shall we drink or what shall we wear? The Gentiles seek after all these things and your heavenly father knows that you need them all. But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness and all these things will be added to you. Jesus is highlighting the connection between the emotion of desire, I'm sorry, the emotion of anxiety and the desires of your heart. There's a very close connection between your emotion, anxiety, and the core desire of your heart, your desire for things like health and, and love, contentment, peace, success, prosperity, relationships, happy endings. None of those desires are wrong. One of our biggest problems is we believe we have far more control over the things we desire than we actually do. As long as you believe you have a lot of control, you're gonna be one worried person. Every month we gather, uh, we call it our, our worship planning time, but we, we take a whole half day and we look ahead, you know, four to six weeks out at the messages that are coming and we plan the services, you know, what songs we're gonna sing, if there's any creative elements. And we, we all walk together, me and Lloyd and, and a number of other staff members, especially those that are on our worship team here and some other creative people, we walk together through these texts and we examine them together. And, you know, many of you know Nate Sousa. If you don't know Nate Sousa, you do know Nate Sousa. He's right up here with the, the, the rad beard every week playing the guitar, right? That's Nate. Nate said this about this text. He said, the theme that pops out to me is control. Think about the birds. They don't control anything and God provides for them. And then Nate connected it to verse 33, seek first the kingdom. And he said, what is the kingdom? the reign and rule of God. In other words, God's control. Seek God's control, not your own. That's good insight. Now, when Jesus says, for the Gentiles seek after the, all these things, Who's he talking about? We're Gentiles, you know. The context of what he was saying, here's, here's what he meant. You know, you had the Jews and then anyone who was not a Jew is a Gentile. Here's what he's saying. The people that don't have a right view of God in the world, their heart's desire is to seek after security and happiness and they will grasp on. They will try to control for it. They will fight for it. They will grasp for it. They will worry about it. They will long for it. 
because they think that it is theirs to control and theirs to grasp. And so people, again, Gentiles here means people who don't have a right view of God in the world. They make it their highest ambition to secure for themselves the things they most desire, striving for the best, most comfortable lives they can control. And I read that and I think, oh my goodness, how much of a Gentile am I in all that sense? Jesus is saying to his followers, you don't have to live like that because you know who is in control. And it's not you. You don't have as much control as you think you do, but guess who is in control? God, and so seek his control, seek his kingdom, like let go of stuff. Seek the reign and rule of God starting right here in your own heart. And then when you set your heart on the kingdom of God, the the reign and rule and the control of God over starting you, then all these things will be added to you. You can let go of all your attempts to grasp on and control and get all these things because you've set your heart on something else. And there's only one who controls them all anyway. And guess what? He knows what you need right here in our text. He knows you need them all. Let him control it because you can't anyway. So Jesus wants to transform your desires from all the small little pity desires that you and I have, like things for comfort and success and entertainment and more money and wealth and promotions and a spouse and grandchildren. And, you know, I'm like, I'm not saying those things seem small to us, but in comparatively speaking, they're small little ambitions. And he wants to transform your desires from those small little things to desire the grandest, most beautiful, most compelling idea imaginable which is the reign and rule of God with his people in a whole new creation overflowing with peace and justice and joy. Seek first the kingdom of God. Seek it right here, number one. Tom Wright wrote it it this way, the underlying principles of the whole Sermon on the Mount come together at this point in a huge but exhilarating challenge. He's, He's referencing seek first the kingdom. God's kingdom and the way of life that goes with it are the things you should aim at. Then you'll find that food, drink, and clothing look after themselves. Put the world first and you'll find it gets moth-eaten in your hands. Isn't that just so true? Put God first and you'll get the world thrown in. This is what Jesus is saying. That's exactly right. Now, Jesus has pushed into our thoughts, our worldview. He has taking on our emotions and desires. We have anxiety because we're desiring all the wrong things. And he's saying, transform your desire to seek after my control. And now from that new place, we're able to make a new choice. That choice is found in verse 34. Therefore, there's that word again, pointing to the whole transformational pathway he's been walking us through. Do not be anxious about tomorrow for tomorrow will be anxious for itself. Such a nice play on words. Sufficient for the day is its own trouble. Now notice he says the command a little differently. Do not be anxious about tomorrow. In other words, choose to live in this moment here right now. Choose to trust 
in this moment here right now, it is the only thing you can control. Will you trust God for now, for this singular moment? John Stott, wonderful Bible commentator and teacher, he wrote this, all worry is about tomorrow, whether food or clothing or anything else, but all worry is experienced today. All worry is about tomorrow, but it's experienced today. Whenever we are anxious, we are upset in the present about some event which may happen in the future. However, these fears of ours about tomorrow, which we feel so acutely today, may not be fulfilled. Isn't that something, like that's just a good insight on, on the human heart and the human condition. How much of our mental and emotional energy do we spend worrying about things that might come? In fact, it's so easy for us just to be sucked out or plucked out of the present moment because we're thinking about, oh man, what if this happens? What if I lose my job? What if my freedoms are taken away? What if my marriage doesn't work? What if my child doesn't turn around? What if, what if, what if, what if? Real life is here now. When you're afraid of something that might come, even if it is going to come, like even if you knew it's going to come, when you're afraid of something in the future, you're not actually fully present in the moment. This is what Jesus is saying. Sufficient for today is its own trouble. In, in, in other words, where, where your focus needs to be is on what's in front of you right now, the choice that you have right now, the, the trouble that you have in this moment, and there's a choice to be made, and the choice is will you trust God for today's trouble? Whatever that is today. So think about the way Jesus lived. Like, you know, he, he was just this fountain of life. It's like everywhere Jesus went, it's like he just left this swath of life, this trail of life behind him. It was just this remarkable existence. And this is how Jesus lived. Again, Tom Wright, here's how he put it. Jesus wasn't always looking ahead anxiously like us, making the present moment count only because of what might come next. No, he seems to have had the skill of living totally in the present giving attention totally to the present task, celebrating the goodness of God here and now, if that's not a recipe for happiness, I don't know what is. And guys, I will tell you that is true. I, we've all had this experience. I just want to remind you of what this experience feels like. When, when you're having an anxious week, like I've had an anxious week, and then something happens to you where some delightful little thing. It's like a meal just comes out of nowhere that you weren't expecting to be so delicious. Or, you know, someone you care about just re-enters your life and says something encouraging to you, or you just get a hug from someone that you've had a cold relationship with for a while. There is something that just brings you back right to that moment right there. And just for that, even if it's a temporary moment, you don't feel stressed. You don't feel anxiety. You're just present with the taste, with the hug, with the conversation. You're just present. 
What if we could learn to live life that way? Jesus did. And I, guys, I'm with Tom Wright. If that's not a recipe for happiness, I don't know what is. Now, here's what I want to call you to. As followers of Jesus, I want us to endeavor to share in the happiness of our master. And one of the ways we can do that is by making the choice to trust God with what is right in front of us right now. Make a choice to trust God in this moment. And then you'll have the same choice in the next moment and the next moment. And soon you'll have practice at trusting him for all the moments yet to come. So we come to this application and, you know, Lloyd and I have been working really hard and, and not just us, but this whole team that works on these services. We've been working really hard to try to make the application as practical and tangible as we can each week. And, you know, we prayed the Lord's prayer together and we fasted together and we've done all kinds of things together. And I came to this one. What would I most want for us to do this week? And I thought about this and I thought, I'd, I'd want us to walk the transformational pathway with, with a worry in our lives. I'd want us to literally just use this text and, and follow the, this pathway to a transformed heart as it relates to a worry. So, so here's what we're gonna put up on the screen. I wanna encourage you to do this. So Jesus, show us what it means to follow you. Spend time this week praying through the transformational pathway with one worry of your life. Well, how do I do that, you ask? Well, here it is, you know? I see some of you getting your cameras out or your phones out. Take a picture of this if you want to. It'll also be posted on the website with the sermon later. You literally just start a prayer and, and you, you just go through this, this, these questions. It's, it's not rocket science. It's, it's not the only way to do it, but th this, is, this is what we wrote for today. Name the worry. That's always gonna be the first step. Just tell God what you're anxious about. Don't be afraid. He's not gonna rebuke you for being anxious. He knows you are. Name it. And then here's a great question to ask as you're talking to God about this. Why is it hard to trust God with this? Like of all the worries in your life, like why this? Why is this one eating your lunch? What is it about this thing that's really hard to trust God? If you thought about that, engage your mind, engage your thoughts and do this in a prayer. Then describe how you feel when you're thinking about this thing. Like literally, I mean like when you're thinking about this thing, oh man, my body feels stiff. My mouth gets dry and I, I just, I feel this heaviness. My, my, there's a weight that's on my chest. I just, I just have this lack of, of a sense of freeness, you see? Then move into the desires. What is your deepest desire relating to this part of your life? Talk to God about it. I mean, let's just say, I don't know, it's your, it's your marriage. You know, that's the stress, that's the anxiety. What is your deepest desire for your marriage? Maybe it's a child, maybe it's financial provision. Like, God, what is, have you ever asked that question about your worry? It's such a great question. Talk to God about that. And then from that place, you can make different choices. How is Jesus inviting you to respond? I think he's gonna answer that question for you. What choice is he leading you to make? What a wonderful 20 minutes, 30 minutes of your week this week. If you're a journaler, I encourage you to journal through this. If you're not, just pray through it. And if you've got people in your life or someone in your life that you could trust enough to talk about, talk about this with somebody. Let's follow Jesus. Father, would you help us? We need you. We depend upon you. Would you give us life, even in this moment right now as we worship? 
In Jesus' name we pray, amen.